Hey, Jay. So, do the X-Men have any location-specific spin-off teams? Like, you know, the Great Lakes Avengers? Uh, yeah, there's the X-Men Peoria. I would love to read that book. No, I'm sorry, that doesn't exist. I'm, I'm lying. But I guess, yeah, I'd count Excalibur. The first iteration was based in the UK, and then there was the later team in Genosha. Oh man, I forgot about the Genosha Excalibur team. That was the run that established that Grant Morrison's Magneto wasn't the real Magneto, right? Correct. And it was also the run that included Professor X hallucinating serving in the army with Kate Pride's dad and Logan. Oh, also Eunice the Untouchable joined the team, which was somewhat surprising. How did Xavier get Eunice to join up? An inspiring speech about the dream? A condescending paternalism? He had a teenager turn into a giant monster and eat Eunice. What? I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 416 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome, as you might already expect, to an Excalibur episode. Excalibur, a book that is rapidly approaching its end, just like X-Factor. I mean, it could have been Great Lakes Avengers. That's true, it could have been Great Lakes Avengers. I, I think there were some mutants in there. I don't actually remember. I imagine it depends on whether you count Squirrel Girl. Was Squirrel Girl in Great Lakes Avengers, Scott? I don't actually know. We're really just showing how laser-focused we are on the X-Books here. Uh, as Great Lakes Avengers critics go, we are, we are failing hard. We will not be explaining um, any Avengers, Great Lakes, or otherwise today. But back to Excalibur. So Excalibur's moved a lot from its original status quo. It is, of course, still in the UK, but other than that, it's changed pretty significantly. What's going on right now? Well, these days they are, of course, based out of Dr. Moira McTaggart's genetics lab off the coast of Scotland on Muir Island. And Moira's been researching the mutant-targeting legacy virus for, like, a long time— in part because she's the first non-mutant human to be infected with it. Yeah, we know, but this was decades and decades before House of X came out, so bear with us. Anyway, on the team are a number of people, including former X-Men Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Colossus. British empathic elemental Megan. Cybernetic alien Douglock, who resembles the dead new mutant Doug Ramsey and recently fully severed himself from the alien phalanx's hive mind. Former New Mutant and Moira's foster daughter, Wolfsbane. And Pete Wisdom, ornery former spy and Shadowcat's current older boyfriend. This implies that she has a current younger boyfriend. Well, we'll kind of get to that. Kind of. So recently Moira locked herself in quarantine to figure out a cure for the legacy virus without risking infecting anyone else, and set her lab not to let her out until a cure was confirmed. Unfortunately for Moira, Wolfsbane decided she would have none of this, and jumped in after her, just as the door was closing, trapping herself in with her foster mom. Kitty, meanwhile, was an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. for about 24 hours, and fought a ghost, it was a whole thing. But at the time, as we've just alluded to mere sentences ago, she flirted a bunch with an earnest young techie named Rigby Fallon. Man, what a name. Having left Muir Island on the heels of a fight with Pete Wisdom. Who again is her much older boyfriend. And that brings us to Excalibur number 118, New Year's Evil. This is written, of course, by Ben Robb, penciled by Mel Ruby, inked by Scott Koblish, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Kiff Scholl. And this is a very special issue for me, Jay. 
For me as well. This is this is the first issue that we're returning to that I remember hating the first time I read it. Yeah, same, same. Um, as I think we mentioned when we started Ben Robb's Excalibur run, we remembered not enjoying it. And this was always the issue that I would come back to as why. Which in retrospect is kind of weird. Like, there are aspects of it I'm not a fan of, but overall, I liked it a lot more this time. Overall, I'm liking Ben Robb's Excalibur run a lot more doing it for the podcast than I did when I read it. So, I have some theories as to why we were so down on it the first time. Honestly, I'm still not a fan, but I'm I'm not as, like, aggressively angry at it. And I think a lot of it for me was disappointment at what I felt like was a really fun concept kind of destroyed. That's legit, and we'll definitely get to that in our coverage. Ben Robb, of course, loves mining old continuity. He's very, very good at it. He's very, very productive at it. Perhaps that's a better way of putting it, yeah, because sometimes it fits the story very well, other times it doesn't. And I think in this very arc, we get examples of both of those things. Yeah, um, the art in here is solid. I mean, I think I was annoyed enough at the story the first time I read it that I really kind of glossed over that in my memory. But it's good. It's it's well-drawn. Agreed, yeah. I like Mal Ruby's art a ton. I like Coalition's inks a ton. Part of that for me, I think, is that I'm not inherently a very visual person. So when I was just a teenager and a kid reading comics, I didn't pay a ton of attention to the art. If it was somebody like John Romita Jr. or Bill Sienkiewicz or Brett Blevins who had a very distinctive style, I would I would catch that. But for somebody like Ruby, who just has a you know, a, a, a noticeable style to our eyes right now, but still a house-ish style... I just blended everybody together. I just didn't think about it. I love that I've had the chance to get better at that by doing this show. Likewise, very much, I think, on on both ends of that spectrum. And speaking of the art, the first page is goddamn delightful. It is a plush Bamf doll. That is, of course, one of the dolls, which is like a plush chibi version of Nightcrawler that exists in the Marvel Universe, which is kind of weird. But it's one of those in the dark corner of an unmade bed. And even though it's just a normal plush toy, well, a normal plush toy based on one of the people that lives in the building where it is, the shadows themselves are so goddamn creepy. Sinister with a lowercase s. Ruby's pencils are very good here. But Koblish's inks are incredible with the blacks, not just here, but really all across this storyline, because there are a lot of shadows. Well, and they're pulling a whole lot of weight in terms of the true nature of that cute plush toy, too, and in disambiguating it from the cute plush toy. As the doll jumps off the bed, and it turns out it's not a doll at all, but something living, you know, much more realistically muscled, And not alone, as dozens of glowing eyes and sharp teeth appear in the shadows behind him, and he says, Bend, rend, twist, and distend. Gonna capture Kitty's dumb dragon and hack off his head. That doesn't rhyme or scan. Oh, this Bamf is immediately fired. And Ruby draws the quarry of the Bamf's hunt, Lockheed, with, like, this almost Ren and Stimpy level of exaggeration. This part is so cartoony, but that kind of distorted cartooniness that was such a thing in the 90s. Like, Lockheed's tongue is just sticking way far out of his too wide mouth, and these Bamfs are just like these demonic little cartoon things. And we find that apparently they're after Lockheed, Kitty's dragon, alien dragon best friend, Because Kitty loves Lockheed, and she should have loved them instead. This is bad logic for a number of reasons. I completely agree. The Bamf's motivation is questionable. Well, the Bamf's motivation is questionable, but also 
they come from Kitty's fairy tale. They're based on Nightcrawler. Lockheed in the fairy tale is based on actual Lockheed. That is true, yes. And again, we'll we'll get to all of that. We'll get to the, the nature of the Bamfs. But first, let's go to a pirate ship, because Shadowcat and Nightcrawler are dressed as pirates and sword fighting. This is, of course, in Muir Island's Danger Room equivalent. It's all, like, holographics and robotics and such. Is it me, or does it seem like Danger Rooms are just freaking everywhere at this point in Marvel history? That having, like, hard light holograms and completely realistic environments that you can just program from a computer screen is super, super common? Yeah. So strange. No, it makes perfect sense in a medium like comic books. Like, why, why the hell wouldn't you stick that technology into your superhero hideout if you had access to it? I guess that's true. I mean, uh, comics don't have to worry about, like, a CG budget or a set budget. They do have to worry about the artist having to draw more detail, but, like, the artists are probably going to dr- draw a bunch of detail regardless of the setting, so freaking go for it. Well, and this is a chance to play with settings. It's a chance to put, for example, a pirate ship in the middle of your superhero book and, and draw a swashbuckly fight scene. This uh, scenario is officially called Pirate Kitty versus Captain Bloodcrawler, and I really do love that Nightcrawler and Shadowcat, I mean, they've been on teams together for so long, they're such good friends, and they still have fun together. Like, even with all of the dark shit they've been through, they're still buds, and they still goof around. It's great. And we've been seeing Nightcrawler play pirate scenarios in the Danger Room for decades at this point, I think. He'll keep doing so. I still remember when Alan Davis came back as an artist when he was working with Chris Claremont in like the early 2000s or so. Mm. That one scene with, uh, yeah, Nightcrawler and Storm being all swashbuckly in a holographic pirate ship. No, it was Nightcrawler and Rachel. Oh, right, because there was that like little romantic flirtation between them for a while, which always seemed weird to me. Yeah, likewise. In fact, that came back later. Now, anyway, uh, this, this particular danger room, incidentally, is a mix of holograms and robotics, and that's an important detail. And... Kitty's head is not really in the game, and Kurt's got no time for that. Now either you pay attention to this training session, or you come clean about the funk you've been in these past few weeks, lest you want to taste of me steal! Har! So Kitty explains sheepishly that while nothing happened between her and the exquisitely named Rigby Fallon, she kind of had some feelings, and she's not quite sure how she feels about having had those feelings. She elaborates. Not so much him as the idea of him. He made me feel something I haven't felt in a long time, certainly not since Wisdom and I started dating. Young. And indeed, in the Kitty Pride Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. miniseries, she was written by Larry Hama as much younger than she's recently been written in Excalibur. More in line with previous versions of Kitty from different books before Warren Ellis took over Excalibur, hooked her up with Pete Wisdom, and wrote her as, if not necessarily very old, certainly an adult. So, I don't know, what do you think, Jay? Is this meta-commentary on Ellis's run? Or did Rob just want to insert some tension between Wisdom and Kitty, and this was how he decided to do it? This feels like an attempt to write away a plot element that is generally recognized as significantly problematic. Yeah, I mean, and we've certainly seen that before, even specifically with Kitty and an older boyfriend. I remember it was Jim Shooter, I believe, who mandated that Colossus and Kitty break up because she was like a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, and he was a number of years older than that. Yeah, he would have been 18 or 19, which isn't a completely horrific age difference, but at those ages, I would say is is a pretty, pretty far reach. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, this is not uncommon for a writer to look at plot elements from a previous run and go, you know what? Nah. 
And ideally, the writer will find a reason to organically undo those plot elements instead of just saying they aren't the case. We've certainly seen writers do both. I know Chris Claremont does have a habit of just refusing to acknowledge any plot lines that other people wrote that he doesn't like. So I think this is actually a pretty deftly done example of that, and specifically for the meta-commentary that you mentioned, because the context of their split, you know, what Kitty's talking about here, actually goes a pretty long way to address the objections to Kitty and Pete Wisdom's relationship, at least the ones that don't have to do with ethics. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And in a way, this reminds me of the last X-Factor episode we did, where we talked about uh, the fact that we had all these changes occurring, and even the meta-commentary changes that themselves were occurring, like everything worked within the plot. Nobody felt out of character as they were changing from the way they'd been portrayed before. That's true here, I think, with one notable exception. And I think, honestly, it's it's the fact that everyone else is pretty much in character that makes that one stick out so pronouncedly. And that's the Banffs, which we're going to get to shortly. Or get back to shortly, rather. But first, this is a Danger Room scenario, and as we know, you have about a 50-50 chance of the Danger Room being hijacked or going crazy when you're in there. And indeed, that happens, and our piratey friends are attacked by sharks. Like, seriously, this happens so freaking often. Even Warhawk did it back in the day, an issue that was so unremarkable that we didn't even cover it early in our podcast. Ouch. Thankfully, a moping and thoughtful Pete Wisdom wanders over for his own training, pondering the fact that he never would have trained before he was part of a team, uh, just in time to scare those who hijacked the danger room away, those being the aforementioned BAMFs, and to stop the program and save everybody. So, unfortunately, he then tries to flirt with Kitty, who is in no mood for that, and storms off. Speaking of awkward, Megan and Colossus find each other near a dying tree. Megan's feeling really bad that she's been so distracted by everything going on lately, that she didn't take care of the tree, and Colossus is here to cut it down so he can plant a new one, which he's pretty intense about. Like, he hefts this giant axe above his head as he explains, despite the fact that Megan is, like, right there in front of it. The other detail that I think matters here is that the tree isn't dying, it's actually dead, and Megan insists that it's still sort of connected to the life force of the planet, even though it's dead and so can't be cut down, which creates a paradigm, I guess, where dead foliage can never be cleared, and I feel like Megan is working towards a world where forest fires are a really, really big issue. Maybe she just likes mulch. Natural mulch. But I have a theory about Colossus. I think he's mad at dead trees in general. Ever since that one time back in the Bronze Age, when John Byrne quit drawing Uncanny X-Men due to disagreeing with Chris Claremont over how to interpret Colossus pulling a tree out of the ground. I mean, I don't think he's particularly mad at them. I think I think this is just sort of what he does to chill out. He clears out dead trees. No, that makes sense. Maybe he'll reconsider now that he realizes that they're connected to the life force of all things. I mean, I'm sure owls will be happy. No, that's fair. That's fair. Megan, however, flies off. She's very upset because she's been getting the impression that Colossus has this unrequited love for her. And that's, like, inappropriate because, you know, she's got a, a fiancé, a partner, Captain Britain. But Colossus thinks to himself, wait, I, I don't feel that way at all. She's an empath. I think she's projecting her own uncertainty onto me. That's very awkward. But indeed, Colossus and Megan have been super tight since Captain Britain's been gone. Remember, he lost his powers a while back, thanks to the Dragons of the Crimson Dawn. We don't need to talk about them any more than is absolutely necessary. That's Captain Britain, not Colossus. Uh, right, yes. 
And so while Brian's been gone, Colossus has really been a bud to Megan. They've spent a lot of time together, uh, both in this book and in the Colossus one-shot, where they fought Arcade at a, a French theme park, which we'll probably cover that someday. I don't know. It's it's interesting to me. Like I find a sense of relief that for once Colossus is the stable one in a conflict. For so long, he's just been in such psychological turmoil, and here he's actually handling it. I'm not going to say perfectly, but relatively well. Like he's not crossing anyone's boundaries. He's being respectful. Yeah, he kind of hit his rock bottom a while ago, and has been steadily clawing his way back up ever since. Well done, Piotr. Well, this awkwardness is saved by a murder attempt, because Colossus sees Douglock about to be crushed by a falling boulder, which was pushed cartoon-like by the cartoon-like unseen Bamfs. And Colossus punches that goddamn boulder with a blow that would make Chris Redfield proud. Does anything really make Chris Redfield proud? I mean, boulder punching. The team gets together and they ponder all of these recent minor attacks and the fact that they have heard bamp sounds and smelled brimstone where they've all happened. And of course, that's the sound and smell of Nightcrawler's teleportation. And Kurt thinks that he might know what's up, because after all, he has met Bamfs before. Okay, so let's flash it back to the 70s. Let's flash it back to Kitty's fairy tale from Uncanny X-Men number 153. The Bamfs are originally, therefore, from Earth 5311. Uh, that's the universe established in Kitty's fairy tale. And they exist based on the idea that everything someone thinks of actually exists somewhere in the multiverse, and later would show up in Dave Cockrum's 1985 Nightcrawler miniseries, which we covered in episode 58. As I recall, in that episode, you referred to the Bamfs as terrible sex smurfs. And I stand by that description. Yeah, so male Bamfs look like the ones we've seen here, like little, plush, big-headed, plump-bodied creatures. Uh, female Bamfs are taller, they look less like toys and more like people, so these are all definitely male Bamfs. They're specifically sex-dimorphic in the tradition of funny animal cartoons, where you have very, very cartoonish, very anthropomorphized males, and very, like, exaggeratedly sexy females. Yeah, and so thus, all of these male bamps being in love with Kitty makes some sense because they seem to have a very binary and heteronormative uh, bamp society. Yeah, the fact that they're all in love with Kitty because she created them is, is a little weird and is definitely at odds with what we've seen of them before, which is that they're just really, really into ladies. Yeah, it is a little strange, and that's the thing, like, I never thought I would be objecting so much to the characterization of the goddamn Bamfs, but it's kind of character assassination, like, they were a pain in the ass before, but now they're super horny for one specific girl who doesn't necessarily know that they're sentient, and they're homicidal about it, and that's, that's not cool. Come on, Bamfs, you were better than this. Somewhat better than this. Yeah, they've gone from cartoonishly awful to just awful. Right. So, uh, Bamps, we will attempt to defend your honor, such as it is. So, last we checked, they were stuck in the well at the center of time, originally from the weirdly significant Bizarre Adventures 27, so the question of how they got to Earth-616 in the form of Kitty's Bamf doll remains open, and we'll get back to that in a few minutes, but I notice also that you looked up their system of government. 
Oh yeah, the Marvel database lists lists that for various societies and um states, and I quote, the Banffs do not maintain any recognizable system of government. That is right, my friends, Banff come ungovernable. Anyway, Pete Wisdom finds a distracted Kitty Pride looking for the missing purple dragon Lockheed and forces a confrontation. By being an asshole. Look, you silly little girl, grow up for a second. Forget that bloody lizard and come out from under that bed. I said we need to talk now. If there is anything Pete Wisdom should have learned by now, it's that he will never come before Lockheed in Kitty's affections. Also, like, don't don't talk to anyone that way, especially your girlfriend. Correct. He's wrong for many, many reasons here. But things get quickly painful because... Kitty knows what this conversation is going to lead to, but again, they're saved from this awkwardness by a murder attempt. Yeah, the, the Banff doll Kitty is cuddling during the conversation, immediately chomps on her arm and calls in its many companions, realizing that it has found the object of their affections. To which Pete comments, Let me guess, Satan stuffed the stockings this year. Ruby and Koblish do such a great job of making the Bamfs seem adorable and silly in one panel and terrifying and feral in the next panel. Like, their appearance doesn't change significantly, but just their their bearing, their body language, their expressions. That part's really good. I object to the Bamfs' characterization, but the visuals on them are goddamn perfect. And they are furious at Kitty for creating them with her fairy tale and then forgetting about them in favor in their eyes of Lockheed, who again, in his defense, actually existed before the fairy tale. It's true, it's true. Yeah, it's kind of unclear just how real or not the Banffs are. And like you said, they were maybe stuck in the well at the center of time at the end of the Nightcrawler series. Maybe they went back to the Kitty's fairy tale universe. It's actually very ambiguous. I went back and read that story earlier today, and I don't know, I think Dave Cockerham was just having so much fun being goofy in that series, he didn't really sweat the details like that. And honestly, I kind of miss that. Yup. I think Megan may miss a more interesting time as well. I love her take on the giant fight that has broken out. Again? First it's Black Air, then the Sidri Hunters, and now plush toys. Staying alive has become so tedious lately. Oh man, I sympathize with that statement the last few years. This is fun. The thing is... I agree, the, the Bamps are not handled well, but a lot of the other characters are. This book kind of feels like Excalibur. Ben Robb, I think, does that well, except for, you know, the focal plot point of this story. What this reminds me of, I just realized, and I feel bad saying this because it's it's so maligned. Um, have you seen season four of Community? Uh, yes, the gas leak season, as I recall. Right. There are, there's one really good episode. And there are a lot of episodes that feel that are that are terrible, and there are several episodes that feel like pretty good fan fiction by someone who's got a fairly good sense of the show, but not quite on model. And this feels like the third category. I mean, at least it doesn't feel like the second category. Puppet <coughs> <Hop> episode. <laughs> And that's weird, because we've had a number of different voices on Excalibur. Like, yes, Alan Davis's run and Chris Claremont's run feel very similar. Alan Davis is a writer, that is. But, like, Warren Ellis's run feels completely different, and it's pretty well regarded. So it's interesting that this one just doesn't quite click, and I think part of that is because it seems to really be trying to emulate some of those previous run's qualities. Exactly. It's not a new voice. It's a voice that's coming in and trying to echo 
a combination of other voices that have been on there before. And, and whether or not he's actually trying to do that, giving the impression of doing that by dredging up all of this, you know, obscure continuity and moments that, that make it feel, it, it feels very fanish, which isn't always a bad thing, but which I feel like you have to be able to support by writing really superlatively. And Rob doesn't quite hit that mark. Well, the BAMPs aren't hitting the mark in their fight against Excalibur either, so they call in their boss, and it's Nightmare! What? Yup, Nightmare, you know, the uh, demon of, well, nightmares, who wears uh, ragged green clothing and has a big Dream of the Endless-esque mop and a pointy nose and feeds on fear and dreams and stuff. So, here's what I will say. I would have forgiven this story if it all turned out to be a Nightmare hallucination. The entire thing? Yeah, because the your toys are evil and, like, vindictive and generally genuinely awful versions of the cartoon story creatures that you created fits nightmare logic. Oh yeah, you know what, I'm just gonna headcanon that to have been the case. I don't think that, like, super contradicts the story, so I say we go for it. I don't know, like, it contradicts enough that I'm, I'm not quite buying it. Oh, fine. Rain on my retcon parade. That brings us to Excalibur number 119, Preludes and Nightmares. This is written by Ben Robb, penciled by Jim Calafiore, inked by Rob Hunter, colored by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Preludes and Nightmares. Is that a reference to something? Like, that's also the name of a Morbius volume, of all things. And then Sandman Volume 1, speaking of Sandman, is called Preludes and Nocturnes. Like, what are we referencing here? I got nothing. Listeners, if you know, let us know. So, like most Nightmare issues, this one is a glimpse through our hero's darkest fears. It's a common trope. Like like you said, it happens almost every time Nightmare shows up, or Despair for that matter. But, I don't know, it's fun. It's a good little look into the characters' individual psychologies, assuming the writer does it well. So this time, Nightmare is in league with the Banffs, and he's offering to free the trapped members of Excalibur if Lockheed gives the Banffs the key to Kitty's heart. Which doesn't seem like a really feasible scenario. I mean, there was that one time that Psylocke had a little figurine of Archangel inside her heart, and then he pulled it out and gave it to the Crimson Dawn, and it got confusing. This is also confusing, but in different ways from that. I'm sorry, I just summed up X-Men in, in its entirety. This is also confusing, but in different ways from that. Alright, our work here is done. So, they are in the cleverly named Screaming Room, which is the Screening Room. Oh, is that like one of those rooms from the primal scream therapy craze of the 70s? No, I think it's a play on the phrase screening room. Oh, fine. The art for all this is really fun, though. Like, Califiore, who's filling in for Mel Ruby, does a very goblin-y nightmare. Like, his nose and chin are just so big. Although the Bams themselves look like tiny football players. They're, they're very beefy. It's strange. It's a little weird, yeah. The lettering is fun, too. Nightmare is a sort of maniacal character, often. Kind of comedic in his creepiness. So in, in his uh, weird font and his uh, ragged speech balloons, he gets green text instead of italics. And when he says something really evil, it's in red text. And that made me think, how would a letterer letter our podcast? Like, the things we say. I mean, we're regular humans, so presumably we'd have the standard human range of, of effects. Oh, fine. That's no fun. I do think that you'd be all caps and I'd be mixed case. You know, that, that seems right. So, 
we we go through the nightmare scenarios in order, and I, we guess we can just run through them in the same order they show up in the issue. We'll start with Nightcrawler, and his dream is the mob, the, the, the tiny European village mob part of his origin story, but his role and Professor X's role are reversed. So Nightcrawler is powerless as, as Bastion subdues Professor X and then takes a wooden stake and pounds it into the professor's forehead. Could you even do that with a wooden stake? I mean... Bastion's pretty strong, so I I guess so. But this is interesting. It's interesting that the mob is a mob of Prime Sentinels led by Bastion. You know, the villains from Operation Zero Tolerance. Yeah. The event that really took the X-Men down in a lot of ways. And that Excalibur really wasn't around for. And we're going to see this in this era. Nightcrawler's getting more and more guilty and just troubled by the fact that he hasn't been there for the X-Men. He hasn't been there to protect Xavier from disappearing at the end of Onslaught, to protect the X-Men from Operation Zero Tolerance. So this doesn't just fit his own psychology, his own sense of what a nightmare would be. It also fits where he is in the plot right now. Colossus's nightmare scenario is also guilt-based, to at least a fair extent. Um, His begins with him as a world-famous painter with a spotlight exhibition at the Louvre, and then his dead family rises from their graves to kill him because the Rasputins are cursed to misery. And there's a lot of implication of, of, you know, the idea of him pushing back against a dark fate he can't avoid, but I think also a lot of implicit survivor's guilt in this scenario. Very much so, yeah. And that also fits what Colossus has been going through for a long time now. Like, almost to the exclusion of any other character trait, he's had so much family tragedy that it just seems like that's kind of all he thinks about when things are hard. Yeah, I mean, he's been saturated in it for a long time. It makes sense. It does. That's less a criticism of the character and more a criticism of the fact that all of the writers, that's been their one go-to thing for Colossus, to have worse and worse things happen to him so he gets guiltier and more messed up. Yeah. So Shadowcat appears as we first saw her at the age of 13, curled up in her bedroom as her parents argue below. And she's worried that she's repeating her parents' patterns of betrayed trust with Pete Wisdom. Uh, don't worry, Kitty, it'll get way worse. You're gonna leave Colossus at the altar many years later. What the Bamps don't realize is that to win her affections, they just have to change their name to Peter. Oh, right. And then they will have a flirtation, or will date for a while, and then have a troubled breakup. Yeah, exactly. Problem solved. Douglock, for his part, is sought and reabsorbed into the phalanx, which is embodied in the scenario as what looks like a large nude man with a dinosaur head in a blue cloak. Hey, that is a dog head, and that is Shinar, who is one of the phalanx from the Phalanx Covenant storyline. Right, right. That's interesting, because Shinar, his whole deal was that he was a little too individual for the phalanx, and here, they're yelling at Douglock for being too individual, for having broken away too much, and they're trying to reincorporate him. Megan, for her part, is marrying Captain Britain when he pulls back her veil and she reverts to her original monstrous form. Oh, the one where she looks kind of like a bat lady. And the wedding, this is a fun one because the wedding is full of cameos from pretty much the entirety of previous Excalibur, including Technet! Yes! And former Excalibur members Rachel Summers, Cerise, Kylan, Farron, and Micromax. Establishing Ben Robb as literally the only person who remembers Micromax or that he was on Excalibur. He was in uh, Excalibur recently in the modern comics, so Teeny Howard remembers. Okay. There's also Di Thomas, Alistair Stewart, Captain UK. There's Widget, which technically means there are two Kitty Prides there. Also a bunch of Warpies and Roma. Yeah, it's fun. It is a nice callback to those of us who have been there since, in some cases, even before Excalibur, back in the Captain Britain days. 
Now, if there's anyone on Excalibur whom we know is racked with guilt, it's Pete Wisdom, and perhaps that's how he manages to actually resist Nightmare's stick. He takes Nightmare's remote control, and it took me a few minutes to realize that, because the panel where he does it really makes it look like he's hitting Nightmare in the face with a brick, which I think would have been very funny. But he goes back through the dreams as the protagonists overcome them, and he, he talks to Nightmare about each and sort of about the things he's, he's learned to see in his teammates. So Megan takes her gorgeous true form. She's strong and dedicated, even if her empathy confuses her sometimes. And this true form is one that a lot of people would have forgotten. Again, this is really Rob going back to some very specific continuity. In Excalibur number 46, we saw this form. It's this sparkling pastel energy form, almost a little cel-shaded, you would call it, if it was in a video game, even though that's often the case in comics. It's hard to explain. This was the form that only the Yeti-like Nuri could see in that issue. And... Let's see, uh, Colossus makes peace with his dead family who return quietly to their graves. And he just, he just talks to them. He doesn't fight with them. And it's really nice. We don't see the dialogue, and we don't need to. It's all there in the body language, and it's kind of heartwarming, actually. Douglock successfully establishes himself as an individual. He basically remembers that he purged all of the phalanx firmware so they can't get to him, pretty much negating himself out of his scenario. On the one hand, that seems like such an easy resolution where you just go, hey, this doesn't make sense. On the other hand, that kind of fits for Doug Locke. And Nightcrawler beheads Bastion, who turns out to be a robot in this scenario. He's dedicated to Xavier's dream and legacy, whatever the cost. Kitty, though, is stuck. She hasn't found a way to break free, and Nightmare tells Pete Wisdom that it's Pete's fault. Strip away the many faces of Catherine Pride. The precocious genius, the live dancer, the mute heroine, even the deadly ninja. And your darling Shadowcat's just a child. And like all children forced to grow up too soon, she'll someday become an emotional stray, destined to forever walk in the shadowy gutters of love unrequited and alone. Your relationship is at a crux point. Stay together. And your adult world will soon become anathema to her. A constant mockery of a childhood prematurely lost. In time, she'll come to blame you, resent you, even hate you. For you will personify everything she never really wanted. Her life will have become a veritable nightmare, all because of you. That is a harsh condemnation of Warren Ellis's run. And Wisdom believes it. He believes that Kitty, what she really needs is to be able to be young again. That him bringing her into the adult world is hurting her. So I don't know. Does the book believe that too? Is Rob just saying that Wisdom is feeling guilty about this idea that Nightmare is putting forth? Or is Rob saying that that is accurate? What do you think? I mean, I think Rob's saying that's accurate, and I think that that's—I I, I believe that because what he does next is write wisdom out of the book. Pretty much. Like, if that were something that they grappled with and overcame, or if she countered significantly, I'd feel otherwise. But but this this feels like—it feels like an explanation for why he's about to be written out. Yeah, yeah, fair. And Pete says, well, you know, he's been living with guilt and grief his whole life, and there's no horror show that Nightmare could show him that would compare to what he's currently going through with Kitty. And he blows a heart-shaped smoke ring, which is a nice touch, and then breaks everyone out. 
I like this. I mean, not necessarily their relationship ending this way, but I like that how the heroes win is that Wisdom himself has changed. He was so closed off, and he's really learned to actually see his friends as people, to actually have friends, to see the good in them, and to be able to tap into that. And when you're fighting Nightmare, that's kind of what you have to do. It's a psychological realm. And everyone else talks through what's happened. They're relieved and happy. But Pete and Kitty still need to talk. And that brings us, finally, to Excalibur number 120, Current Events. This issue is written by Ben Robb, penciled once again by Mel Ruby, inked once again by Scott Koblish, colored once again by Kevin Tinsley, and lettered once again by Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Kiff Scholl. So the cover, the cover is Kitty looking sad, facing us, and facing away from Pete Wisdom as he walks into the background holding a suitcase. I kind of figured they would do yet another reference to the cover of Uncanny X-Men number 138, where Cyclops has a duffel bag and is leaving the watching team. They've done so many goddamn references to that over the years, but uh, they restrained themselves this time. That makes me a little sad. It's a tradition that I dig. I think it just really shows how Pete never really fit with the X-Teams. He didn't even know how to leave an X-Team properly. Ooh, good point. Well, let's not talk about Pete yet, though. Let's talk about Doug Locke, who is working on hacking the planet. Uh, I mean, the uh, the island. Uh, and as he does, he's furious at the island's computers for not working right and for just being cold machines with no concept of emotion like he has. I guess it makes sense he would resent computers because that's kind of what he fears he used to be and could theoretically become again. This is like being angry at your guinea pig for not having a job. <laughs> That was a very specific sentence you just said. I mean, I was trying to think of a good a good analogy. It's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. Well, Douglock is trying to convince the computers that Moira's experiment is in fact complete and she has in fact cured the legacy virus because that would unlock the quarantine chamber and let Moira, and more importantly, Wolfsbane, who Douglock has a great big crush on, out. You'd think it would be easier for him to find a way to hack himself in, since he's presumably immune to the legacy virus as a techno-organic entity. Well, Doug Locke's not thinking straight, and uh, also relevantly, he's not asking anybody else's advice. He's just trying to be a good person, without confirming that what he's doing is actually being a good person. But aside from his writing, his visuals are incredible. Ruby draws an amazing Doug Locke. Doug Locke, of course, is basically Doug Ramsey, Cypher, the dead new mutant, but with that kind of phalanx yellow circuit-covered skin, sort of rough but in a regular uh, sharp-cornered way. His hair, specifically, it's just these sort of, uh, they almost look like dreadlocks, but these tendrils of circuitry, and they just look badass. And he is on the phone or on the video phone with with Rain. Um, They're really close and comfortable. He's got a massive crush on her. It's obviously mutual, and it's very cute. It totally is. And their conversation is largely about what's happened over the last five issues while Wolfsbane has been stuck in quarantine, which is a nice little narrative device to get we, the readers, to look in on various sets of characters, as Douglock continues to, you know, hack in the background. Hackground? Nah, that's a bridge too far. Uh, plugging his techno-tentacles into various receptacles. Ugh, phrasing, jeez, what am I even doing here? Anyway, uh, what are Megan and Colossus up to? Well, nothing receptacle-related. He is trying to paint and hitting a wall. Metaphorically. Yeah, he's got artist's block, and he and Megan have, I don't know, friend block? He gently tells Megan that he really does just see her only as a friend, and he thinks that she was projecting her own romantic interest onto him 
And she doesn't disagree, but what she does do is scold Colossus for pulling back when she really needed a friend to help her figure things out. Which, I don't know, that seems hard. Is that is that fair? Like, the person who is having to untangle your complicated feelings to have them as your confidant about those complicated feelings? I don't know, I can see it going either way. It really depends on the friends. What do you think about them? I think it's super unfair, especially because she was the one who was pushing him away. Yeah, yeah. And I don't think that's bad writing, necessarily. Like... Megan has been a person who's always had trouble differentiating herself as an individual from the people around her. Like, she has empathic powers. That's that's part of how she works. It's something she struggled to overcome. But as my old therapist used to say, in times of stress, we regress. And she kind of is. Megan needs to learn about silk ring theory. She really does. Uh, listeners, look it up. It's interesting stuff. We'll put a link in the visual companion. As for Nightcrawler, he is now in his original uniform, uh, the one he wore when he joined the X-Men, and he shaved off his goatee. And also, he doesn't have a buzz cut anymore, his hair grew out really quickly, which, eh, I don't know, whatever, comics. Anyway, the point is, he looks like old Nightcrawler. Like Nightcrawler that we remember from as far back as the 70s. Maybe he's wearing a wig. Oh, maybe he's wearing a wig. He wanted to look like his old self so much that he just put a wig on top of his buzz cut. He is, he is cosplaying classic Nightcrawler. It's gotta be a lot easier to cosplay yourself than to cosplay someone else. Doesn't I feel like the standard would also be much higher? Well, that may be true. But anyway, the reason he's doing this is that he, as we mentioned for the last issue, has been super troubled about what happened with Professor X, what's happened with the X-Men. And he feels weird about the fact that the X-Men haven't gotten in touch with him by video communicator. And so he does the absolutely unthinkable. He does what no X-Man before him has even considered, and he picks up a phone. And calls the X-Mansion. Unfortunately, that call comes through in the middle of chaos at the X-Mansion, which happens a lot in this era, so it's Marrow, of all people, the newest, orneriest member of the X-Men, who picks up. Who the f*** is this? This is Kurt Wagner calling from your island. Who's this? Meryl, the f*** do you want? Ah, you must be new. Be a darling and put one of the real X-Men on, would you? There's a Liebchen. Real X-Men? Real X-Men? How oh, I lousy... And then she impales the phone with a uh, bone spike before they have to remove the Comics Code Authority label from this comic. I mean, I object. Kurt would not be this much of a dick to a new member, damn it. No, no, he wouldn't. Although, to be fair, Mara didn't exactly make a good first phone impression. You know, it's not like she's the X-Men's receptionist. She is vastly underqualified for that job, possibly anti-qualified. As for Kitty and Pete, Wisdom is packing up. He's saying very little and getting ready to leave. Kitty says that nothing happened with her and Rigby back on the helicarrier in that miniseries, but she did feel something that she can't deny and doesn't want to be dishonest about. Something different than what I feel for you. Mostly because he and I are the same age, but nothing like what you and I share. I'm not asking you to like it, but can't you at least see my side? Why should I? Peter, if you can't answer that yourself... Then maybe this is for the best. And he has a whole conversation in his head about he sh how he should try to talk to her. And finally, all he says is, You said you loved me. And then there are these three silent panels as he waits, and she looks down, and then he walks away. And after he walks away, Kitty finally answers, I thought I did. 
oh man, I have such mixed feelings about this. A breakup seems overly intense for something that's actually very minor in the grand scheme of things. But with all the tension they've had, narratively earned or not, they have had such a breakdown in communication. And this is where it finally comes to a head. Not with a big fight, but just with them being unable to actually talk to each other. Right, because, well, fighting, or at least antagonism, is a big part of, of their relationship, of sort of how they stay together and their their dynamic as a couple. So it makes a lot of sense that it would end quietly. Yeah, and I think it works really well. I mean, I don't know. I have mixed feelings about their relationship in general. Obviously, yeah. the age thing is weird. It was sort of kind of justified by aging Kitty up, but only sort of kind of. It feels especially weird in the aftermath of the various allegations against Warren Ellis, of course. But if you're going to end it, then I think this is a way that makes sense and a way that does make me feel very sympathetic to both of these people. Yeah, I think it's it's handled about as, again, about as deftly as it could have been. And away he goes on a boat from your island as he and Kitty literally watch the distance between them grow as he sails away. And, uh, you know, aside from being part of the crowd scene in the final issue of this book, that's the last we'll see of Pete Wisdom for a while, until he heads over to X-Force before he takes over the team when Warren Ellis takes over as the writer. Which kind of makes sense, since he's very much Ellis's pet X-character. Very much. So, uh, there's some tragedy, but here's some more. Remember how Douglock was trying to hack into that quarantine chamber? I do! Well, he does. He convinces the computer that the legacy virus has been cured— and is so excited to just jump in, silhouetted with a light behind him. Although with his spiky robo-hair and his muscular superhero body, he just looks like a freaking Super Saiyan. It's like Goku just showed up in the quarantine. See, when I see muscular silhouettes, the first thing I think of is that old Wii game, Muscle March. Oh, the one where you were a bodybuilder and you had to, like, raise the Wiimotes and uh, move them in position so that you could crash through the wall the right way? Yeah, so you could run through the, the holes that the other bodybuilders had left in, in bodybuilder poses. You know who would be amazing at that game? Uh, not me. I was terrible at it. Warlock. Oh shit, you're right! Warlock would be delighted with that game. Anyway, sorry about that. That was that was an entirely irrelevant digression, I say, as if we don't make those continually. We've also, over our 400-something episodes, I feel like we've mentioned Muscle March more than most people in the world who have heard of Muscle March ever have. You know what? It's a delightful game. It's tragedy that it's been forgotten. It's just, it's, it's just really pleasantly ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Terrible controls, unfortunately, but eh, what could you do? It was a downloadable Wii game. Anyway, he, he busts in and he says, it's okay, it's fixed, because I might have the cure for it in my head. And this isn't entirely unfounded. Right, because if you go way back to Excalibur number 80, which a caption helpfully reminds us of, you'll remember that Strife's old robot Zero implanted information about how to cure the legacy virus into Douglock's head when he helped Douglock free himself from the phalanx. And that could potentially be a really good lead, because Strife, of course, was the one who created this version of the legacy virus. Well, I'll buy that, but that's not having solved the problem, that's having a potential lead on a potential solution. And that's one of the reasons Wolfsbane is furious. Well, that and the fact that he didn't even ask anyone about whether they wanted him to do this. Because if it works, great, but if it doesn't then all of the work they've done all this time in quarantine, all the work they've done toward not just curing the legacy virus in general, but curing it for Rain's foster mom will be for nothing. Moira might die because of Douglock's romantic overconfidence. Yeah, this is not a good grand romantic gesture, listeners. Don't do this. Yeah, yeah, don't do this. It's like one of those big lists you find on the internet of uh, all the things that characters do in rom-coms that are romantic in the rom-coms, but would probably get them arrested in real life. 
Yeah, yeah. So using your techno-organic powers to hack into the entire computer system on your girlfriend's foster mother's island to break the two of them out of quarantine from the unstable mutant virus that your girlfriend's foster mother has acquired? Don't do that. If you learn nothing else from this podcast, learn that and that you should never masturbate with a cactus. I was actually about to bring that up. (laughs) Great minds. Same page, yeah. Meanwhile... Colossus and Nightcrawler sit down to have a serious conversation about whether Excalibur is really making the kind of difference they want to be making, but they are interrupted by a call from Sabra, the Israeli superhero, who calls on the mutant underground line. Oh yeah, she showed up here in their next books recently. Colossus actually knows who she is. He remembers that she was in the Contest of Champions, the Bronze Age Street Fighter 2-esque event where every country had its own stereotypical hero. Uh, do you remember, remember Shamrock? She was from that. I do remember Shamrock. Anyway, Colossus wasn't in the Contest of Champions, so I assume, like, Wolverine or somebody told him, but it's still a nice little touch. And she is calling because someone with simultaneous powers of telepathy, telekinesis, and pyrokinesis is attacking Israel. And there's only one character who we know of that that describes. Yep, the villain of the next arc will, in fact, be Legion. I wish that it had been a red herring. Oh, that it was actually just three other mutants with those powers, like all wearing a trench coat on each other's shoulders? Or someone faking it effectively, or or something making it, you know, effectively misreadable as Legion? Ah, you know, Legion's fun. Connection to Israel. Anyway, we'll get to all that. Ah, fair enough. So, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. And it's one I've been, I've been thinking about. How do you think these Banffs compare to the Afterlife Banffs? Oh, the ones where the Dark Banffs and the Light Banffs kind of make up Nightcrawler's soul inside? Uh-huh. These Bamps I don't like at all. I liked them more when they were in the Nightcrawler miniseries, yes. but I think the ones that are in Nightcrawler's soul are the best, simply by virtue of being associated with a story where Nightcrawler has died and is in heaven, and what he is doing in heaven is having pirate battles with his evil pirate demon dad. Yeah, I, I cannot argue with that assessment. Meanwhile, you, listeners, have questions. Luminous beingings, asked via Tumblr, What Marvel villains not normally associated with the X-Men would make good X-Men villains? So, Luminous Beings suggested Norman Osborn as an X-Force villain, and I agree with half of that. I like the idea of Norman Osborn, but I think he is absolutely an X-Factor villain, not an X-Force villain. Oh, using those bureaucratic skills against the bureaucratic team? Right. I also always get a strong sense of personal fulfillment from Magneto beating the hell out of Red Skull. And I also feel like Nightcrawler and Batroc the Leaper would just really enjoy fighting each other. Oh, they would just be having fun there. Like, even if it was a real life and death struggle and, you know, the lives of hostages or whatever were at stake, it would just be such a fun fight. They'd be smiling the whole time. They'd both totally lose track of the stakes. It would be very, very entertaining for them. So, I don't know. I was thinking of of other villains, and I know Thanos is extremely overused at this point, but he could fit Excalibur's mystical-slash-cosmic bent really well. I think far better than one of their biggest antagonists, Necron, did back in uh, issue number 50. And of course, you have multiple versions of Excalibur. I think I'm thinking the old, like, Claremont Davis-era Excalibur, maybe specifically the Davis-era Excalibur. I'd also love to see Thor villain Dario Agar, the CEO of Roxxon Energy, who sold his soul to become a Minotaur, a long story, as an antagonist for maybe the X-Men, but maybe specifically X-Corp, you know, X-Corporation, the business-oriented one that Monet St. Croix and Angel were running. That book was gone too soon. Did he stay the CEO once he was the Minotaur? Oh, very much, and he would, like, gore people a lot. He's a, he's a bad, bad man. I mean, Minotaur. 
And I think Taskmaster would be a great Laura Kenny Wolverine villain. He can mimic everybody's powers and fighting style, so that would really force her to get clever with her own combat style, which is always fun when Laura does that. I'm going to reverse the prompt once, too, and say that I would really enjoy seeing Farron just heckle the shit out of Doctor Strange. <laughs> oh, Farron, we love him so. Just minorly thwart him. And be really peevish about it. Yeah, because Farron is, is incredibly, incredibly petty. He's the worst best. Alright, so Duck Orsino, good name, asks via Tumblr, Will you ever cover Legion or The Gifted on the podcast? I recall you both mentioning them in passing, but I'd love to hear your complete thoughts on how they hold up as distinct television series or as forms of X media. Well, we can never fully predict what will or won't be on the show, but this is an interesting question in terms of the scope of stuff we cover. So... Legion and The Gifted, television shows, both with multiple seasons and a number of episodes per season, that is a lot of content. And anything with that much content, if it's not core related to what we cover, which is, you know, X continuity in primarily the comic book universe, primarily Earth 616, we really question whether we want to do that. That's why sometimes we'll do Wolverine one-shots, but we don't cover the Wolverine ongoing series. There's just too damn much of it, and it's a little bit removed from core X continuity. We've made an exception to a limited extent for movies just because they're self-contained and we can cover a lot of them at once. Um, but really, I think we've only dedicated like one or two episodes to all of those together. Yeah, and when we've talked about, say, the X-Men cartoon, we've done it in a very general, sky-high view. Like, we didn't get very particular. And that can be fun to do, but it can also, I feel like, sometimes not do justice to the property. Television shows just have so much damn content that if you focus on them only broadly, you're going to miss out on a lot of what makes them work, what makes them good. I also feel like they're a medium that we're not as well-equipped to engage with. Like, both of our, our backgrounds are as comics readers, and in my case, as a comics writer and editor, and we can engage critically with comics to a degree of depth that I don't think we really could with many of the other media that the X-Men have appeared in, including television. Like, there are a lot of references, there are a lot of aesthetic tools, there are a lot of storytelling choices that would just be lost on us. For real. Listeners, if you do like hearing people go through television with that level of detail, uh, friends of the podcast Tina and Max Carlton do a podcast called Welcome to Television, which covers all sorts of stuff, and it is quite good. And while they have not covered any X shows so far, if, if you hassled them about it sufficiently, I suspect that you might be able to convince them. <laughs> yup. So as for the shows that you mentioned, Duck, we have, of course have seen both of them. Uh, I think we have liked both of them. Uh, do we want to do like a real quick, real, real quick review? What's our take? Legion is fucking amazing. Legion is by far and away the better of the two shows, and I think it stands on its own much, much better for people who aren't familiar with the X-Men or aren't necessarily familiar with X-Continuity. It's a really cool take on the character. It's one that's, I think, heavily informed by Cy Spurrier's version of, of Legion, which is a very good choice if you're going to draw from the comics, but is also very, very, very much its own creature. Aesthetically, it doesn't try to be an adaptation narratively and, and just sort of veers off in its own weird space and directions. And I really, really love it for that. Yeah, and it doesn't really try to be an X property in general. Like, yes, a couple major X-Men characters are in the show, but it really does its own thing. And I feel like The Gifted is sort of in the opposite direction. It's a pretty good show. Like, I enjoyed the hell out of it. It's just not, like, mind-blowing the way that Legion is. 
But what it does really, really well, and what it tries to do and succeeds at really, really well, is to be an X-Men show. It feels like X-Men. Not just because there are a bunch of X-Men characters in there. I mean, freaking Beautiful Dreamer's a major character. Like, they get have some pretty deep cuts. But just because it captures that whole fighting to defend a world that hates and fears us, backs against the wall, mutants are persecuted, found family thing, it nails that feel. So... I don't know that it feels like X-Men. The X-Men in it feel like X-Men, absolutely. The actual show is deeply bogged down by having a set of protagonists who are just not very interesting. Oh, I liked them. But uh, yes, they are less interesting than the X-Men characters. They they try. Um, they are definitely the reason that holding hands with air quotes around it is now a euphemism for incest in our household. Uh, yeah, a couple of the main characters are kinda sort of versions of the Strucker twins of Fenris. (laughs) Weird choice, I think they made it work certainly better than they could have, still a weird choice. Yeah, Gifted is fun to watch just, like, even just for the weird, weird, weird choices they make. It's also got the best version of Polaris in any medium. Truly stellar Polaris, very true. Anyway, we could go on, but as we just said, there's really not room in the podcast for us to do so, so we'll, we'll leave it at that for now. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. In two weeks, we're back to the flagship titles of the line. As Generation X drops by for a visit, Sauron flies the coop, and Bishop and Deathbird get sexy in space. (laughs) 